Good morning. I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church and specifically to a new study that we're beginning today together as a local church. I find myself a little closer than I usually am to the first row, so I'm going to, I'm going to awkwardly pull this thing back for just a minute. I don't want to spit on DeMario in just a second. Over the next several weeks, you're going to hear from myself and from Ryan. And you're also going to hear from several leaders that are being raised up at Grace Community Church. And we're going to begin to preach through this letter together. And so we're going to begin our time this morning. Before we do that, we're going to ask God to bless our time in His Word. And so I'm going to pray, and I would ask you to pray with me this morning. Father, we want to come to this moment, Lord. And God, we pray and we ask for your help. Even now, God, in the midst of this service, Lord, that you would not allow this time that we spend in your word to fall to the ground in vain, Lord. God, please don't let it be wasted. God, I look across this room this morning and there are needs all around this room, Lord. There are needs all around this room, God. Many different needs, Lord. And not just material needs, but soul needs, God. Hearts this morning need to be strengthened in the gospel. God, you know it. You see it. You know this morning who's bored with Christ. God, you know this morning who's struggling to break patterns of sin. God, you know us, Lord. You know how needy we are, God. Not an ounce less needy, Lord, than the moment we first believed. We need Jesus. We need to see our Savior. And we long to worship you today, God. And you're a kind Father, Lord, and that you've given us your word, and that you've promised us that your word is profitable because you breathed it out. And we ask God for that blessing this morning, that you would make our time in this God-breathed Word, that You would make it profitable. Lord, strengthen souls this morning. Build us up together, Lord, this morning in the Gospel. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones, British pastor, pastor in London, about 50 years ago, one of his famous quotes He used to be a doctor, he was called into the ministry, he became a famous preacher, and he's well known for saying that the most important vital sign in the Christian life, in other words, if you were to say, ah, this morning and be examined by the Holy Spirit, Martin Lloyd-Jones says the most important vital sign in the Christian life is how amazed you are at the grace of God, how amazed you are at the grace of God. And I think we can back that up from Scripture, that this gets to the very center of the most important thing in the Christian life is amazement towards Jesus, value, treasuring Jesus Christ, His person, and His work, what He's done for us in the Gospel. And one of the things that we're going to see this morning is that the Apostle Paul is going to take that same truth and he's going to apply it corporately to the local church. And as we walk out of here this morning, we're going to see that the most important thing about the people of God, the most important thing about the local church is how high do they lift up Jesus Christ? How much do they treasure the Son of God crucified for sin and risen from the dead? So this is where we're headed this morning together in 1 Timothy. And there's just a a few introductory matters that I want to bring us into before we get started. And I want to mention just a few of these. First, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul. And it focuses in on one man and one local church. And I want you to see that. If you have your Bibles, you can open to 1 Timothy with me. And you'll find in that second verse, you'll find the the audience addressed. This letter is addressed to Timothy, one man. But then, as you come to the very last verse in this letter, chapter 6, verse 21, 
1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 21, you see he closes this letter with the phrase, Grace be with you. Now, if you take a quick glance at your ESV footnote, you'll find out that the you there is plural. And the way that we render that in the South is, is we say, Paul's saying right here, grace be with y'all. Grace be with y'all. And so that's what I want you to see in this letter. It zones in on one man, Timothy, but the Holy Spirit intends to address more than Timothy in this letter. He actually intends to address the entire local church at Ephesus through Timothy being addressed. God intends to address the entire church. So this is who it's written to. It's written to us. This is God's word to us. And then Paul actually gives us a purpose statement in this letter. If you'll turn to chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, he tells us that he's writing these things, this letter, and he gives us this phrase, that we may know how we ought to behave or conduct ourselves in the household of God. And so, though this letter is often called, and rightly so, a pastoral epistle, uh, this is more than a pastoral epistle because it addresses more than Timothy's role in Ephesus. Paul's concerns are broader. He's writing to rightly order the local church. And so, one of the things you'll notice as you read through the New Testament is more than any other letter, more than any other letter in the New Testament, 1 Timothy dials down on the doctrine of the church. And the, and, and the, and the formal name for that is ecclesiology. The ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. More is here than anywhere else in the New Testament. Things like the aim of the church, the message of the church, the practices of the church, the structure and leadership of the church, the ministries of the church, how conflict is to be addressed in the local church. So all things related to the local church. And so 1 Timothy is Paul's attempt to show us what a biblical church is supposed to look like. And so for, for several years now, we've referred to this letter as the church order letter. That he's writing to encourage Timothy. Yes, he is. But he's also writing to structure to show us what a biblical church looks like. And this message is very needed today. This message is very needed today. And, and, and the greatest need, typically, in churches that have the gospel, we're not even talking about heretical churches, is the weakest area of churches that have the gospel, the true gospel, is often this area right here of ecclesiology. The message of 1 Timothy is greatly needed today. Many have made the fatal error of assuming or presupposing that the Bible doesn't tell us how to do church. It actually does tell us how to do church. And Jesus didn't leave this up for us to decide just the best path forward. The way the local church is organized, the way the local church functions, the message of the local church, the aim of the local church... All these things are governed by King Jesus through His Word, and we see that most specifically in 1 Timothy. So this is a letter that's greatly needed in our day. Paul writes to order this church, order this church. And we're going to see in just a few moments as we read this text, we're going to see that he writes to correct a specific situation in Ephesus. Something had gone wrong, and the Apostle Paul writes to correct it. And it wasn't always this way of how we read about the church of Ephesus in 1 Timothy. If we go back in our New Testaments to the founding of this church, we can read about it in Acts chapter 19, that this church was founded by the Apostle Paul himself. So you think about that. How's that for a church planner? Okay. How's that for a good beginning, that you got the apostle to the Gentiles that gets your church started? And not only that, in Acts 19, we're told that Paul stays for about three years in this city to nourish this local church, to, 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 to get them ready for, for the task ahead. And so they had a very good beginning, but as the apostle Paul moves on to other evangelistic work, he actually gives us a dark prediction about something that's going to happen 
in this local church at Ephesus. And so I want to read this dark prediction to you. In Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul says this to the Ephesian elders. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so the Apostle Paul predicts this doctrinal departure brought about by false teachers. And by the time he picks up the pen to write this letter to Timothy that we know as 1 Timothy, this departure has already happened. And that's what we're going to dive into this morning. We're going to read the first 11 verses together. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word to this local church this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I heard, as I urged you, when I was going into Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which... I have been entrusted, with which Paul has been entrusted. So this is God's word to us as a local church this morning. And I want to point out very quickly in the first three verses that Paul, he gets right down to business in this letter. That's how serious he views what's going on in, in this local church as he addresses it head on. And I want to show you that he does three things in the first three verses, and all of these, each of these three things are connected to authority. That he responds to this problem in Ephesus with authority. And you could even say apostolic authority. In verse 1, he declares himself to be an apostle. And then, he, and then he qualifies that phrase, by the command of God. By the command of God. Usually when he announces himself in this way, he uses the phrase, by the will of God. But we see Paul using more severe language here. He's ratcheting things up. He says, Jesus Christ commanded me to be in this office. He commanded me to do the work that I do. I'm an apostle by the command of God. And so he intends to, 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 to confront this Ephesian controversy, this Ephesian problem, with apostolic authority. And I want you to think about how unique this is okay, in, in our day. In the sense that nobody that you know can throw apostolic authority at a conflict 
within a church in the same way that Paul did. Okay? Nobody can do this, but we can do the same thing that Paul did. We do it a different way. He appeals to his office, to his person, that he's an apostle by the command of Christ. He has seen the risen Lord Jesus. He is writing out God-breathed scripture. And we do the same thing. We deal with church conflict, church uh, controversy with apostolic authority, not by claiming that we're Apostle Billy Bob or an Apostle Juanita. We deal with problems with apostolic authority by getting under the writings of the apostles and making their words our words. And as we do that, we are in the stream of apostolic authority as we deal with problems in the church. So right out of the gate, he says that he's an apostle by command of God. By command of God. And then his second move is to establish Timothy as his authorized representative. He tells us in verse 2 that Timothy is his true child in the faith. His true child in the faith. Now more than anything else, what that phrase means is like father, like son. Okay? That's what that means more than anything else. And what Paul is doing is he's showing this is my representative in Ephesus. My doctrine is his doctrine. My faith is his faith. He's my true child in the faith. And he's marking Timothy off to deal with this problem. This would be, instead of a letter of recommendation you know, from uh, your previous employer, this would be like the apostolic stamp on Timothy's ministry in Ephesus. He's ready to go to work because he is the apostolic representative in Ephesus. The same faith as the Apostle Paul. If you would have heard Paul preach the gospel, and then you would have waited about five minutes and heard Timothy preach the gospel, guess what? You would have heard the exact same gospel. Why? Because they have the same faith. He's the true child in faith. And then the last thing Paul does in these opening verses is he establishes Timothy's authoritative mission. And we see this in verse 3. He tells him to remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So in no uncertain words, Paul tells his trusted assistant Timothy to stay and fight. I want you to stay in this place, and I want you to fight this doctrinal controversy. I want you to stay, and I want you to charge. That word charge is a, it's a, an authoritative military word that Timothy is to give orders to these certain persons. No more that. Okay? He's sent to shut it down. He's sent on an authoritative mission. He's not sent into Ephesus to call a meeting and to negotiate a settlement with these men. He's sent to shut down false doctrine. Charge them authoritatively. Charge them. Do not teach any different doctrine. And the difference there is different than the apostles. Different than the apostles' teaching. The teaching from the risen Christ to His apostles. And so what had begun to happen was that certain persons, according to uh, verse 3, and that means that there's multiple of them, okay, and likely they are both men and women. You find two names at the end of chapter 1, but there's more. There's certain persons, and they're teaching different doctrine. Different doctrine than the apostolic doctrine. And the text gives us just a few insights into the kinds of things that they were teaching and what they were doing with the Word of God. Look at verse 4. Timothy is to command them not only about what they teach, but what they care about, what, they, what they're devoted to. I heard a man say one time, every heresy starts in somebody's quiet time. You know, they, they, they got the book open and they, and they go, Eureka, nobody's ever seen this before, I found it. Okay? Every heresy starts in somebody's quiet time, that they're devoted to the wrong things. And so Timothy's that trumpet blast, that, that apostolic voice, not only don't teach this stuff, but don't even be devoted to this stuff. 
Not only what comes out of your mouth, but what's in your heart. And we're told that they're devoted to myths and endless genealogies. Myths and endless genealogies in verse 4. Now when you look and you couple that phrase with this phrase in verse 7, that these men are desiring to be teachers of the law. So you have a reference to genealogy, you have a reference to law teachers in verse 7. It becomes apparent that what these persons are doing is that they're misusing the Old Testament, specifically the writings of Moses. That's what they're doing in the church at Ephesus. And Timothy is sent to contradict them. Okay? They're using the law of Moses. Now this is also confirmed that in verse 9 and 10, Paul gives this list of sins in verse 9 and 10. And guess, guess, the pattern, guess what pattern that list follows? The Ten Commandments. Commandments 5 through 9 are verbatim mentioned in the middle part of that list. And this is just more example that the, the writings of Moses are what's in view. This is what's being distorted. These men desire to be teachers of Moses, teachers of the law, but they're turning it, they're turning it into myths. Myths. There's a, a phrase that's used in Titus chapter 1. Apparently the same sort of thing was happening in Crete where Titus was left. Titus chapter 1 verse 14, Paul refers to Jewish myths. Jewish myths. Myths that are rooted in, in the writings of Moses. Okay, The Old Testament. So what were these men doing? What were these men doing? If we can understand it, we can have a better um, feel for the kinds of things that are still happening today. What we need to be warned by as the people of God. So these certain persons, they're using the writings of Moses, specifically the genealogies, as a springboard for myths, as a springboard for intellectual creativity, for their imaginations to run wild. And the best we can gather of what they were doing is this. Okay, If you read through genealogies just in your quiet time, you'll notice that there's a lot of names in those genealogies that you don't know anything else about. Okay, um, They're obscure names in Scripture. So most likely what these men were doing was they were selecting these obscure names from these genealogical lists in Scripture and they were attaching fanciful stories, fables and myths to these figures to promote speculative teaching. Speculative teaching. So an example of this would be something like this. Genesis chapter 5. In the midst of the beginning of a genealogy, we're told that Adam had other sons and daughters. See the kinds of things we're talking about? Adam had other sons and daughters. We don't know their name. In fact, we don't know anything about them. But the, the mythical law teacher says, no problem, no problem. And what they're doing, most likely, is they're selecting names like that, grabbing them out of the genealogies, and then reaching back and grabbing these mystical stories that are attached to these biblical figures, okay? Mystical stories that are attached to these biblical figures. They might even be using rabbinic tradition of stories that have been, mythical stories that have been passed down about Enoch or about Adam and Eve's other sons and daughters. And these stories would, provoke, would, would, would promote speculation, okay? Speculation. Maybe new doctrines were uh, introduced in these biographies, but Paul says they only lead to speculation. And Paul's point is that this is a misuse of God's Word. He's going to indict them in just a moment that they are using the law of God. They're using the Old Testament. They're doing it unlawfully. Unlawfully. They're using it in a way that's not meant to be used. So if we understand in the broadest sense what they're doing is they're starting with Scripture and they're making up the rest of it, okay? Start with the Bible, make up the rest. That's their strategy, okay? So they, they have a Bible verse, and, and there's just enough of that where they can try to anchor their teaching in Scripture, but then they go on and they preach, not the revelation of God, but the speculations of men. And Paul indicts this speculative handling of the Word of God 
he indicts it as a kind of teaching that's other and that cannot produce disciples of Jesus who are full of trust in Christ and taken up the stewardship of the gospel. That's what he tells us in verse 4, that they promote speculations rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. And so he's indicting as a, as a massive, worthless, endless waste of time. A lot of words come out of the mouth, but nothing spiritual happens. Only speculation. Only speculation. And by way of contrast, in verse 5, he begins to contrast their teaching and its effects with the true teaching and its effects. The apostolic gospel, the apostolic doctrine. And he tells us in verse 5 that the aim of our charge, the aim of the true gospel, the aim of the doctrine of apostles, and that word aim is the goal, the purpose. Here's what we're going after in our teaching, not speculation, but love. The aim of our charge is love. And this is what the true gospel is always after. It's to produce love. Real, tangible expressions of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love. Love. Not speculation, not mysticism, but holy acts unto the Lord Jesus. Love. Love. He tells us almost the same thing in a different way in chapter 6. And I want you to notice that there's a theme running through this letter, and we can see it in the bookends of 1 Timothy. And the theme is to marry together, to weld together both doctrine and character. Doctrine and life. And this is one of the ways he does this. And so he says, you know, almost the same thing in a little bit different way in chapter 6, verse 3. Now in chapter 1, he tells us that the different doctrine doesn't aim for love. Okay? And the true doctrine does. The aim of our charge is love, but when we get to 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, he tells us that the different doctrine, that it doesn't agree with the teaching that accords with godliness. You see that? The true teaching in chapter 1 produces love, and the true teaching in chapter 6 produces godliness. And what that means is that he's taking great pains in these opening verses to show us that doctrine and life, they're not supposed to be separate things. We're supposed to think of those as welded together. Welded together. And what that means is that false doctrine is a bigger problem than you believing wrongly. Than you believing wrong things about Jesus. False doctrine is a problem that relates to beliefs, but it's a bigger problem with that. It's a bigger problem than wrong believing. It also leads to wrong living. Wrong living. And the pastoral epistles, they blast this trumpet several times over that you can't believe false things about God and the gospel and lock them away in this vault in your life and they don't affect how you live. That's not how it works. False doctrine leads to false living. And by contrast, what he's showing us, the aim of our charge is love, is that sound doctrine produces sound living. Sound doctrine produces sound living. And this is the bookends. The doctrine that leads to love and the doctrine that produces godliness. And right in the middle of that, in chapter 4, Timothy gets that, that charge. Timothy, take careful watch over, guess what? Your life and the teaching. Guard them both. They go together. And so I want you to consider that this morning, that, that this connection, doctrine and life, it helps us to avoid two modern errors. Okay, that both, both make the error of divorcing those things from each other. And the first error is this, is that you can have sound doctrine without holiness. How's that for a, a warning for the Reformation crowd, Reformed churches, that you can have, supposedly you can have sound doctrine, but no godliness, no holiness, no love, no fruits of the Holy Spirit. 
And what we're being warned by with this phrase is be very careful because the apostolic teaching produces love. The apostolic teaching produces godliness. And so this is a tremendous warning that no matter how many theological facts you can rattle off in your brain, I mean like a robot that you can remember and, and, you, can, and, and you can get all the answers right doctrinally on a Scantron, this text is reminding us that if you don't have love, if you don't have godliness, you don't have sound doctrine. You see that? And so the one thing that we can say, we can't say about the person who gets all the right answers theologically and then lives an ungodly life, the one thing 1 Timothy won't, us, won't let us say about that person is that their doctrine is sound, but their life is off. Guess what? If your life is off, your doctrine is not sound. It's the doctrine that accords with godliness. But there's another error here, and that would be the other side of the coin, and, and that, that would sound something like this, that you know what we really need to do is we need, we need to love each other, and we need to stop hammering these doctrines that divide us and just arguing about doctrine. You know, Jesus loved people. We don't need to argue about doctrine. We just need to love each other. Okay? And this welding together of doctrine and life in 1 Timothy, it helps us explode both of these categories. Those are false dichotomies. They're not true. They're illusions. And so this text tells us, no, it's sound doctrine that leads to love. It's sound doctrine that produces godly living. You can't have it and go around sound teaching in the apostolic doctrine. You can't get it. And even in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, we bump into this really unfortunate phrase um, with this dichotomy, and we're told one of, the, one of the attributes of love is we're told love, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. Love does not rejoice in falsehood. Love rejoices in truth. And so the Word of God tells us you don't even know what love is without doctrine. You don't even know how to begin to love your neighbor as yourself or love the Lord your God without this standard to differentiate what is false from what is true. And so we have this beautiful marriage. Beautiful marriage. This is the Christian teaching. That doctrine and life, they go together. That we need to affirm the truth, and that truth is meant to transform the way that we live. And this is his point. He's contrasting the effects of false doctrine, the effects of true doctrine. He pushes in even further in verse 5, and he begins to describe the sources of love, where love comes from. And he tells us that love comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, I want you to think about what do those things have in common? A sincere faith, a good conscience, and a pure heart. And I want you to notice that all three of those things, they're inner realities. That's the inner man. That's the inner woman. That's not just external conduct. The Bible's telling us that when the Spirit of God produces love in our life, it, come, it moves from inside out. Okay, That's the gospel dynamic. These are descriptions of a changed man or a changed woman. They have been made new. They have received sincere faith from Jesus Christ. Just in the next paragraph, I believe it's in verse 14, we are told faith and love are in Jesus Christ. They come from Him. All of these things come from Him. Okay? They're inner, inner works of the Spirit of God. And only the Gospel, only the apostolic teaching can produce these, can produce new men and new women on the inside. Okay? You can't paint it up um, on the outside with makeup. I heard a preacher say that's like putting uh, makeup on a corpse or perfume on a corpse. You can't do that. We need life. We need to be made new, and the true teaching aims to do just that. And we know that only the gospel, only Jesus can give us these inner realities, inner transformation. Something has to happen on the inside. And this is what we're told in uh, uh, verse 6, that, they, that these certain persons, they swerve from these things. 
those three inner realities that we just talked about. And so what they've done is they walked away from those gospel dynamics that the Spirit of God changes us from inside out. This is how love is produced. This is how gospel fruit is produced. Men made new, walking with Christ. And they've walked away from these things. And in place, they have, they have picked up an eager desire to teach the law of God. An eager desire to teach the law of God. And this is what they got wrong. Okay? They're eager to teach the law, but Paul indicts them that they don't understand the things that they're saying. So I want you to think about how crazy this mixture is. Okay? Arrogance and ignorance. I mean, dogmatically saying this is how it is, but the reality is that's not how it is at all. Arrogance and ignorance. Eager to teach the law of God, but they don't understand the gospel of God. They've walked away from it. They've walked away from how the Spirit of God has always and will always produce fruit in His church. And because they didn't understand these dynamics, men made new, new hearts, new minds, pure conscience, sincere faith, it caused them to use the law of God in an unlawful way. And this is what Paul indicts them for in verse 9. And I want us to note in verse 8 that, that when he does this, when he leans in and begins to deal with this problem, he's very, very careful to clarify for us the problem is not the law of God. Okay, That's not the problem. He tells us the law of God is good. It's good. Okay? The law is good. And then he, he tells the problem is the law teachers. The problem is they're taking this good thing and they're using it unlawfully. They're using it in a way that it was never intended to be used. And we've got to peek at what they were doing already. But then we come to this phrase in verse 9. And the phrase is this. He corrects their misunderstanding with this phrase. He says, the law is not laid down for the just. The law is not laid down for the just. Now, that's actually a very difficult phrase to get at the heart of exactly what Paul is saying in this context. Okay? And we're going to dial down into it. Paul says the law is not laid down for the just. And we're going to try to work our way there this morning. But I want us to start with this. I think the one thing that we can't say that Paul is teaching, okay, that the law is not laid down for the just, is we cannot say, the one thing that we cannot say, is that the writings of Moses, genealogies and Ten Commandments that he's about to reference, the one thing that we cannot say is that the writings of Moses are not for justified Christians. Because the law was not laid down for, for the just. I think that's the one thing that we cannot say, okay, of what this phrase doesn't mean. And I'll give you several reasons why. That's a really problematic way to think about the law of God. The law of God is not for those who are justified in Christ. The writings of Moses are not for those who are justified in Christ. And here's just a few of these. Here's a few problems with that way of thinking. 1 Timothy 4, Ryan referenced this verse, 4.13, uh, as he was uh, encouraging us as we were getting started. Paul tells Timothy to give himself to the public reading of Scripture. In its most immediate context, Timothy is exhorted to read and preach the Old Testament in that passage because the New Testament is still being breathed out and penned by God. So that's problematic. That's problematic. If Paul's saying, don't use the writings of Moses to the law teachers, and then he tells Timothy, hey, by the way, use the writings of Moses, that's problematic. And then we get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we have that beautiful reminder that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And not only that, all Scripture is profitable. That there's not any corner in the Word of God that, that, that is not to be used in the church of Jesus Christ. It's all profitable. It's all profitable. 1 Corinthians 10, specifically speaking back to the wilderness generation who was caught in idolatry, several different examples of idolatry and judgment by God. God tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things with Israel, 
Those things happen in Exodus and Numbers, both books written by Moses. He tells us that they're examples for us. These things are examples for us, the church, the one on whom the end of the ages has come. And so 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that the writings of Moses are Christian books. They belong to us. They belong to the church. And then probably even more problematic is earlier Paul wrote a letter to this same local church. Letter to the Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul. And in chapter 6, one of the things that he does to the Ephesian church is he takes the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother, and he gives that fifth commandment to Christians, justified Christians in Ephesus. So you see how problematic it is if we land on Christians are, are, are not, the law of Moses is not for Christians. That's really problematic. And I don't think um, that's what's in view here, okay, of this rigid discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, he's going, I, I think he's going to great pains in verses 10 and 11 to show us that the same things that the Ten Commandments forbid, the same behavior that the Ten Commandments forbid, is the same behavior that is also contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. In accordance with the gospel. So I think that way of reading that phrase is wrong and even dangerous. That the law is not laid down for the just. And I think what would be more helpful to get down at exactly what Paul is saying in this text is to use a cross-reference, a close parallel to this construction. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. There's a close parallel between the law of God and why it exists and who it's for and the coming of Christ. And I want you to look at this phrase. In Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus says this. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see how closely that phrase is. Jesus did not come for righteous, he came for sinners. The law was not given for righteous, the law was given for sinners. You see there? Jesus wants us to understand okay, that when He came into the world, He did not come into the world. He, was not, he didn't leave eternal glory, take on human nature, come into the world because everything was just fine and everybody was okay. He wants us to know that. He didn't come because everybody was righteous. That's not why He came. He didn't come for the righteous. He came because nothing was okay. He, he came because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And He came to save us. He came to call us to repentance. And I think Paul is saying in the same way, Paul wants us to understand that the law was not laid down because everything is fine and because everybody's okay. Do you remember what happens when God gives the ten words to Israel? We're told that a fire theophany descends on Mount Sinai, that the whole mountain begins to burn like a torch and shake and quake. And we're told that the Lord God, the, 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 the trumpet blast announced the arrival of the presence of the Lord God, the King of the universe. He opens His mouth and He begins to address his people with His holy law. You shall have no other gods before Me. And we're told that the Lord God speaks with so much majesty and authority and, and, and power and glory that those who heard Him were scared that if He ever did it again, that they would die. And they asked Moses, please ask Him to never do that again. Most terrifying event that you can ever imagine is God it begins to address His people with His law. And the one thing that we know didn't happen at Mount Sinai is the fire come down, the trumpets begin to blast, the Lord God begins to announce His law, and at the very end of it, He leans in and says, by the way, just wanted y'all to know everything's fine, 
and everybody's just okay. Everything's fine, and everybody's just, just, just okay. The purpose of the law of God is to show us not only our need, but our urgent, eternal need to be saved. To be saved from our sins. Galatians 3, it was given to increase trespass. It was given to reveal our sin. It was given that sin might become exceedingly sinful. It was given to imprison all of us under sin. It was given to show us how urgently we would see that we need salvation from the holy God of heaven and earth. God didn't give His law to show us that everything was just fine. He gave us His law. The law is laid down to show us that we're not fine and that we need salvation. And what these law teachers were doing, if you can imagine them, as they crack open the book of Genesis and they begin to wax eloquent about these fables and these stories, is the one thing that's nowhere on their mind is this urgent need to be right with God. You don't preach myths and fables if you're weeping in your prayer closet for souls to be saved and for saints to persevere to the very end to Jesus Christ. You don't bring that junk. You bring the revelation of God. You you bring apostolic teaching, words from another world. And they're using the Word of God in an unlawful way. Their teaching is worthless because it convicts no one of sin. And their teaching is powerless because it does not exalt the saving work of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know they're doing this outside and inside the church. Okay, This is how they're using the law of God, period. They're not calling lost people to be saved, and they're not calling saints to be sanctified. They're just sitting over here telling uh, silly stories, silly myths, That nobody's different when they get done. No holiness. No fruit. No change. And I want us to understand that what these men did was exceedingly evil. It was exceedingly evil. Verse 11, we have this phrase, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And Paul's drawing a contrast here. That is what these men traded. Gospel of the glory of the blessed God over here. Speculations and myths over here. And they dethroned the gospel and put up these silly, pitiful, worthless things in His place. It's exceedingly evil. And this is where the message of 1 Timothy is so helpful for us. That it shows us when, when doctrinal errors are made... In the church, there's different speeds. There's different gears. And what this shows us is that these law teachers, their error is more subtle than other places in the New Testament. Think about the letter to the Galatians, that these men in Galatians, they're coming and they're preaching rank heresy, that the atoning death of Jesus is not enough for you to be right with God. You've got to be circumcised. We find in other places in the New Testament men teaching rank heresy about the person of Christ. That He's not really God. That He may even be an angel, the highest of created beings. But when we get to these law teachers in 1 Timothy, their error is more subtle. It's not like the error and the heresy in the book of Galatians. There's no explicit mention that they're teaching um, Christological heresies or direct assaults on the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Their error is this. They're putting other things up in place of the Gospel. They're exalting other things besides the Gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And the warning for us that we ought to feel is you can even use Scripture to do that. You can even use the Bible to begin to exalt other things besides Jesus Christ in local churches. So the gift that 1 Timothy gives us, this unique gift, is that it shows us that as we fight for gospel purity in the local church, 
1 Timothy shows us that the way that we fight for gospel purity is we fight for gospel supremacy. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we're going to hold it firm, if we're going to keep it unstained, if we're going to guard the good deposit, 1 Timothy reminds us that it goes in the highest place. That our drumbeat is Jesus Christ. Our anthem is Jesus Christ. The gospel sits in the place of supremacy. And the warning is otherwise, the church descends into worthless speculation. Only the apostolic gospel, the apostolic teaching produces love and produces godliness. And those other things, they might scratch an intellectual itch and people might walk away saying, man, that was interesting. Never heard that before. But they won't walk away saying, that just changed my life. I'm a new man. I'm a new woman. This is the gospel only and it belongs in the highest place in the local church. And I want us to just take a minute to just, you know, survey the landscape of this warning of exalting other things besides Jesus Christ. And I want us to remember and to realize that this approach that these men take with the Word of God, the Christless, speculative approach is all around us. Christless, speculative preaching is all around us. Many pastors use the Bible like a diving board. Okay? They use it like a launching pad to start there and run straight as fast as they can into their own imaginations. Okay? Reference a few verses in Scripture and make up the rest. And, and one of the things that's trumpeted to our shame in the church culture is a pastor's creativity instead of his faithfulness to preach the Word of God. Creativity instead of faithfulness. And I want us to understand this type of thing has been happening from the very beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. And later in chapter 1, we, we know that Satan himself is behind this strategy to dethrone the gospel in the local church. And he doesn't care what it is that takes its place. It can be anything. It's always been a danger that affects the local church. And I want us to see, us to see uh, some of the ways that Scripture is handled that's directly connected to this speculative, Christless preaching of the Word of God. One is the charismaniac approach to preaching the Word of God where you sprinkle a few Bible verses, a man sprinkles a few Bible verses into his talk and then finishes it off with seven or eight stories about what the Lord Jesus is telling him in his prayer closet. Start with the Bible, make up the rest. You see it? Start with the Bible, finish with the myth. Start with revelation from heaven and end with human speculation. It's no different. It's no different. And this is what we're being warned about. Charge Charge them. Don't teach different doctrine. No different doctrine. Gospel in the place of supremacy. We also see this approach, speculative, Christless approach, and fanciful, fanciful approaches to Scripture. And this is, this is when people try to find hidden meaning in text of the Bible. Okay? Hidden meaning in text of Scripture, rather than the plain sense of the Word of God. You go that route, if that's your hermeneutic, that, that, that there's something here that's up under the surface and you can't quite see it, and only the initiated can really see it, and this is the secret knowledge that's under the surface, not the plain sense that's on the pages of Scripture. You're setting yourself up for a life of speculation instead of the stewardship of God. That is by faith. You're setting yourself up to start with the Bible and make up the rest. Fanciful approaches to the Word of God. This is one of the fastest ways to dethrone King Jesus in the local church. Hidden meanings in the Word of God. Bible codes. Armageddon timelines. The role of America in the end times. Allegorical preaching that reads things into the biblical text that nobody's ever seen before instead of the plain sense of the Word of God. Again, the strategy. Start with the Bible, make up the rest. 
Start with the Bible, make up the rest. The chief attribute of the fanciful preacher is creativity and not faithfulness to say what God has said in His Word. And I'll give one more example of this, and this is in the pragmatic approach to Scripture. You know this, the five steps to a better blank. And fill it in, whatever you want. Five steps to a better marriage. Five steps to better parenting. Five steps to feel better. Five steps to be a more positive person. Five steps to maturity in Christ. Pragmatism. It's all around us. And the pragmatists imagine that Christians can be helped, say for example in marriage, can be helped with these five simple steps. Okay, Five simple steps that will change your marriage. Five simple steps that will change your parenting. Bloody cross, don't need it. Empty tomb, don't worry about it. Five simple steps, change your marriage. Five simple steps, be a godly father. No bloody cross, no empty tomb, no conviction of sin. Just five simple steps to improve your life. Start with the Bible. Sprinkle enough verses in to make it actually seem that what you're talking about is Christian and then make up the rest. Pragmatism is the same error. Same error. No conviction of sin. No no pressing the holy demands of God on the people of God. No exaltation of the glorious person of Christ and His glorious work of salvation. Just five steps, maybe seven, to be a better fill in the blank. Pragmatic preaching is Christless. That's what's wrong with it. Do you understand? That's the way that Jesus is dethroned in the church. Anything else that can take His place. Five simple steps. Pragmatic preaching is Christless preaching, and therefore it's powerless preaching. Nobody gets changed. Nobody gets changed. Speculations only. Not the aim of our charge is love. Is love from a pure heart. A sincere faith and a good conscience. I'll never forget, in 2009, I was at a large Christian conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and over 50,000 people are in the Georgia Dome. 50,000 people. I mean, try to imagine that. Not for a football game, but for a Christian conference. And there was a pragmatic preacher that gives up to give a talk, and that's exactly what he was. And I assure you this, that I didn't go to hear this man preach, but he was there. And he gives up to give a talk on character, on character. And what this man did was he gave a corporate TED talk, and that's what it was, that would have been better suited for an executive executive retreat seminar than for a Christian sermon. But he sprinkled just a few verses in from the book of Daniel on integrity, to try to pass it off as a Christian sermon. Be a better you. That's what it was. Make your life count. Be a better you. Be like Daniel. Everybody else crumbles. You be the man of integrity. With 30 minutes of worldly wisdom laced all in. And I'll never forget this. Towards the end of his sermon, 50,000 people are in the Georgia Dome. And this one man stands up. And he says what I hope hundreds in that room are thinking. And he stands up and he screams as loud as he can. And he says, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? And he said it so loud that the man was interrupted from preaching his sermon. And for just a moment, 50,000 people were confronted with this reality. That man just opened the Bible. That man's talking about spiritual things and he's sprinkling in Bible verses into what he's saying. But what about what that guy said? What about Jesus Christ? What about Christ? And what I want us to see is that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in this local church. Is These law teachers, they're getting their audience and, and they're going through their teachings and they got their myths propped up. And the Apostle Paul is saying, what about Jesus? What about Christ Jesus? And that's what he says in verse 11. He says, what about the gospel of the glory of the blessed God? The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That's the message that I was entrusted with. The gospel of the glory 
of the blessed God. 1 Timothy reminds us that we have to fight for gospel supremacy, for it to be first place, not just in the church corporately, but in our own hearts, what makes us most excited, what we love the most, what we value most highly, how amazed we are at the grace of God. And if we aren't careful, 1 Timothy reminds us that we can find ourselves assuming the gospel instead of adoring the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Pastor Tim Keller, he says this, because the gospel is endlessly rich, It can handle the burden of being the one main thing in the local church. It's the only thing that can carry the weight and carry the burden of being main thing in the body of Christ. The gospel, we're told in Scripture, is unsearchably rich. So rich that nothing can take its place. This is why Paul calls it, in verse 11, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The gospel of the glory. I'll paraphrase that just to make sure you get the sense of what he's saying there. That we have been given the good news of the majestic splendor of the happy God. The good news of the majestic splendor of the happy God. And that phrase reminds us that the most glorious thing about the gospel is that it reveals God to us. That it reveals what God is like. The good news of Jesus reveals the nature of God. And specifically, we're told in verse 11 that God is glorious. God is glorious. You know, Paul, he unpacks this later in chapter 1, in verse 17. He begins to, what do you mean glorious? He says, oh, I'm talking about the king of the ages. The king of eternity. That's who I'm talking about. The immortal one. The invisible one, the only God. God is glorious. And the good news of Jesus reveals His glory, the King of the ages. And not only glorious, that phrase tells us that God is blessed. God is blessed. And that word blessed, it literally means happy. That's who God is. In Himself and of His essence, God, He's happy. God God is filled with infinite joy and happiness by Himself. That's part, part of the glory of God is that He's infinitely satisfied with Himself. He's happy in Himself. Jesus even comments in, in John 17 about the inner relations of the Trinity. Before the foundation of the world, He asked the Father about the love that He had with the Father before the foundation of the world. You want to know what God is like? He's like that. He needs nothing. He's perfectly happy in Himself. He's as happy as He could possibly be in Himself. He is the blessed God. And that makes the Gospel glorious because it reminds us He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. He's the blessed God. He's the God of glory. He's the God that needs nothing. He has it all within Himself. I want us to see the Lord by faith this morning. This is who He is. He's the glorious One. And He's the happy God. And we ought to stand in awe of this happy, self-sufficient, needing nothing God. And the good news of Jesus reminds us that's who came for us. That's who came for us. Not this little bitty G God, but the glorious God who needs nothing. The blessed God, the King of the ages, verse 17. The God of glory, verse 11. We're told in verse 15 that He came into the world to save sinners. Most important thing about a Christian is how much that amazes you. That the invisible God made Himself visible. That the King of the ages entered into time. That the God of eternal glory took the form of a servant, and died on the cross for our sins. It's not this little bitty message that you slide to the the sidelines of your life. The gospel is everything to us because it reveals the glory of God. Nothing can take its place. What can rival this message in the Christian church? Nothing can take its place. 
And this text reminds us that we're not supposed to treat it like background noise and elevator music, that it's just kind of assumed in the background of everything that we do. We're reminded through this letter and this text specifically that it is the trumpet blast of the local church. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected. Salvation to all nations in His name. The gospel is everything. It's not something that you come into as a local church, as a Christian life, and then graduate past it to other things that are more spiritual. It is the matter of first importance. Yesterday, today, and forever in the local church. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. And what we want to do as a local church is we want to ask for God's help. Help us, Holy Spirit, to exalt the work of Christ to the highest place in every single life and collectively as a local church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the Gospel. God, we thank You how helpful, Lord, Your Word can be to expose thousands of things wrong in our life. If we just, want, if we just know one thing with tremendous clarity, if we know it with all of our being, with all of our hearts, God. And we pray that it would be just that, that we would know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. God, we ask as a local church, Lord, that You would increase our zeal for the Gospel. That You would increase our love for Jesus Christ. God, we pray that You would search us individually by the power of the Spirit for other things besides Jesus that we've exalted in His place. And we pray that You would help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.